Blog Talk Radio.
join in and participate by sharing your views, your ideas, your experiences by contacting us at 323-679-0841 and hit 1. The order for tonight's program will entail, as usual, introduction to our political panelists and analysts. We're going to discuss what's going on in your world and community. We also have a special treat for you where we're going to talk about some important upcoming concerts that are that are going on and support on the Cuba. And last but not least, we were there with our theme. Again, the killing field. Why us? That is our scheduled program for tonight. And like always, you know how we do it on Africa on the Move. We get started with our party by introducing our political panelists and this for today for today's program. Right now we first we're bringing Brother Anthony and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the moon. Welcome Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Haki, and welcome as well, Brother Haki, to Africa on the move. Brother Africa, uh, thanks for having me. My name is, <coughs> my name is Haki Kamapi Mishoki. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm currently with African Awareness, and of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. Uh, one of the things, you know, recently, brother, well, not recently, but you know, historically, one of the things that we talked about a lot <coughs> was this notion that reading is very, very important. And, and one of the reasons why reading is so important is because of the level of propaganda that exists in society. To the extent that we can dissect the uh, propaganda, it depends on our ability to be able to read and read between the lines. And so reading becomes very, very important. But in any event, this question in terms of propaganda is a very, very real one. And so it got me to think about this about, about the role of propaganda in current U.S. society. But check this out. Now, the use of propaganda by those in power is a useful tool in protecting that power. Historically, the abuses inflicted upon poor people was accompanied by half-troops, lies, patriotic appeal, and demonization. Trump's administration thus far has been relatively successful in confusing the people by utilizing the perfect mix of lies and patriotism so as to confound the thought processes of U.S. citizens. In the 18th century France, the disparity between the wealthy and poor was such access to bread for the poor was problematic. Upon hearing of the plight of the poor, the response from the wealthy was, quote, they them in eat cake, end quote. Indeed, this kind of sensitivity was reflected in Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's daughter, in a recent statement in which she said the unemployed can find another job. Now, ironically, uh, Ms. Trump does not, uh, did not point out the fact that in a time of depression, economic depression, jobs actually de- decrease. In fact, for every single job out here in America, there are four people actually pursuing that same one job. Ms. Trump's version of let them eat cake is nonetheless careless and speaks to the casual indifference for the plight of working people in America and throughout the world. From a class perspective, her indifference makes sense. In order for her to acknowledge the needless suffering of the citizenry, she has to acknowledge she's a beneficiary of a system that rewards the wealthy and well-connected at the expense of all others. 
Her choice of words or intent was clearly propagandistic in scope and intent. Now, the interesting thing about propaganda is its attempt to discredit any voice or action that shines a light on systematic abuse and the benefits that accrue to a small group of wealthy people by virtue of happenstance. Attempts to discredit Black Lives Matter has been both <clears throat> brazen and surreptitious. Attacked by both Trump and the political pundits, a campaign of disinformation was unleashed solely to discredit Black Lives Matter. The message Black Lives Matter conveyed was both clear and concise. The murder of Africans by police must cease. This message in no way threatened the institutions of power. It simply makes a declaratory, <clears throat> declaratory statement, which is buttressed by a painful history documented for centuries. So how did Black, <clears throat> so how did Black Lives Matter get straddled with defunding the police activism and world culture? Simple, propaganda. By linking Black, black Lives Matter to defunding the police or world culture, the case can be made Black Lives Matter is anti-police, anti-intellectual, and more importantly, anti-American. No one could blame Black Lives Matter if they were anti-system, since U.S. institutions are diametrically opposed to African, <coughs> African uh, empowerment. But that does not appear to be, be black, Mice, black Lives Matter's motivations. I will be remiss not to point out that the nexus between Trump and the media. <clears throat> Trump recently stated, quote, more whites than blacks are killed by police, end quote. And that's a true statement. Africans are disproportionately killed by the police. More whites are killed by, but Africans are disproportionately killed. Now, Trump's statement for a brief time created a possibility. Clarity was provided where both Africans and whites understood the implication of extrajudicial police killings. That moment was destroyed by media who realized the wealthiest reign, the wealthiest stay in power could only be sustained if African or white, particularly poor people, are pitted against each other. The media strategy was very clear. They retrieved a tape from 2019 showing a white male, Jared Lakey, of Oklahoma being tasered numerous times in which he died. Now, ABC, National, which is National News, stated he was shot over 28 times, even though no proof existed he was shot 28 times. Media veered from its traditional narrative, which questioned police culpability, to a narrative which declared the officers, Joshua Taylor and Brandon Dingman, were in fact guilty of murder. This is unprecedented for them to do that. Reporting usually reports a story and showing the benefit of doubt goes to the police. Not this time. And the question, of course, is why. I suspect this story was a counter to Trump's narrative about more whites being killed by police. Perhaps the aim is of the reporters to <clears throat> ensure a poor whites they should not distrust police and that killing a poor whites is an aberration or not a function of the state. In the event a police kills a poor white person, justification is assured. Uh, <clears throat> but perhaps the broader message is that only Africans need fear the police since justice is not afforded African people in society. Now, any possibility of African-white coalitions working to resolve police killings were complicated by this report. Now, isn't that what propaganda is supposed to do? Isn't it designed to pit people against one another? So my question to the African community that's given the role of propaganda, the question is, what are we going to do to educate the community in terms of how propaganda works? More importantly, what are we going to do to diffuse the impact of propaganda? Institutions are extremely important if we're going to do that. So this is why I keep talking about the importance of institutions, because without that, without that kind of clarity, it's very, very difficult for people to make sense in terms of what kind of things that are going on and the kind of policies that are taking place, and particularly in terms of how those policies impact their lives. So we have to have institutions, and I encourage people to build those institutions. And again, Brother Africa, thanks for having me.
Okay, thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Welcome, Brother Moses, to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the panelists and you, Brother Africa. I, I, my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And once again, thank you for allowing me to be on the show. We are always honored to have you, Brother Moses. We thank you. To our listening audience, you are listening to Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do right now, we are going into a liberation culture break, and when we come back, we will start our first segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. Brother Anthony will lead us off when we come back. You listen to Africa on the Moon. Tu casa yezita, tu kina 
Africa, in Congo, in Mbele, in Africa, Zima, Mama, 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 internationally uh, uh, a, a little bit uh, there was a, there was an article in the New York Post about uh, uh, an, Af- uh, uh, an African sister out of Brazil that was that had her neck broken by a Brazilian policeman uh, uh, you know in 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 an arrest attempt uh and her her uh the the policeman stepped on her neck and broke it and uh, you know and i point and i point this article out uh to show that uh that that uh that 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 africans are are victims of police and military brutality throughout the diaspora and and at home in africa uh, uh let's see an, another uh the um you know occurrence uh the senate uh, is proposing uh a new bill in uh, uh and um uh, in the united states congress called cut profits to the cuban regime act of 2020 
which will require the state de- uh, department to ma- to to to, re- uh, to maintain a list of countries that contract with Cuba for their for 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 their medical missions program. And uh, uh, let's see, some U.S. politicians consider Cuba's me- medical uh, uh, missions hum- uh, uh, human trafficking. And uh, and uh, if a country is on that list for three years in a row, they they move to a certain category that uh, that 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 uh, that cuts off their assistance from uh, the U.S. and also from uh, multilateral institutions like the World Bank and IMF. Real briefly. And also, uh, let's see, uh, in the belly of the beast, uh, Nick Cannon was fired by uh, CBS Viacom uh, for an interview he did with Professor Griff in which uh, he's accused of making anti-Semitic statements. And... um, uh, let's see. Listening to the uh, state uh, statements and questions that flow during ex- excerpts of that interview, uh, Professor Griff and uh, Nick Cannon uh, may uh, tend to uh, uh, conflate Judaism with Zionism, which is a major, uh, you know, uh, political error. And uh, you know, and but uh, you know, but. It, you know, it seems like we're not only being, uh, you know, fixated physically, but he, uh, but economically and politically as well. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we make a transition to Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and the community, Brother Haki? Well, <clears throat> well, Brother Africa, you know, um, one of the things is that when we talk about you know, historical continuity. One of the things we have to understand is that, you know, when we when we talk about the decline of, 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 of civilization or decline of, of countries, we understand there's a process involved in terms of that decline. One of the things, particularly when you talk about the United States and you talk about the role of fascism in America, so when you talk about a situation where essentially where corporations rule and, gov- and the government take a back seat, it means that the power, the, the power of the people is non-existent. The people have no power to affect uh, the situation that they find themselves confronted with. So homelessness, joblessness, uh, declining wages, and so forth and so on uh, continue to exacerbate uh, and why the people with the hopelessness continue to grow, grow, and grow. So clearly that kind of powerlessness by the people leads to kind of a economic depression, which we currently exist in right here in America right now. America is currently in a depression, and the implications of that is that when we think about the depression, we understand the totalitarianism is not far behind. And so we talk about total control in terms of uh, people in positions of power. Then totalitarianism is the prime example in terms of total control of the people by a few powerful elites. Now, I, I wrote this in terms of the role of totalitarianism because one thing we have to understand that certain things go on and sort of give us a clue in terms of how close we are to entering the stage of totalitarianism. But then we check this out, Brother Africa. Now, the Pentagon has begun bailing out defense industry companies deemed vital to national defense. Now, defense is a somewhat questionable term since it denotes uh, protection from something. Since COVID-19 has negatively impacted global economies throughout the world, 
Military expenditures have been flat, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, Israel, Russia, and China. Ironically, between 2010 and 2017, U.S. military expenditures declined for seven straight years, only to increase to 38% of all global military spending in 2020. Now, this means the U.S. spends more than the top 10 countries' military expenditures combined. Now, Pentagon officials maintain that the $782 billion yearly of military expenditures may suffice during normal times, but the impact of COVID-19 compels additional military spending to save vital defense industry. Now, in fact, additional military spending is so needed, the Pentagon has taken upon itself <clears throat> to bypass legal appropriations channels, exclude Congress while unilaterally designating the Pentagon the self-defined arbiter of state power and policy. Now, the Pentagon's financing, excuse me, now the Pentagon's financing of certain industries has two real-life implications for the country. Number one, by, by bypassing the Congress, thereby creating its own policy, the normal checks and balances employed by the state are circumvented. Laws of the U.S. were written specifically to place the military under the jurisdiction of the executive branch or the president, commander in chief, and the legislator, the Congress, that controls the purse strings and laws ensure military coups in America will lack the funds to succeed. The power to control the military in all reality <clears throat> ceased to exist since 1961 when President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex. Implicit in his warning about the military-industrial complex was giving too much power to a bureaucracy that has access to all types of weaponry that could easily threaten the government. Despite Eisenhower's warning, Congress chose to ignore Eisenhower and <clears throat> instead empowered the Pentagon. This empowerment took the form of government refusal to seriously audit the Pentagon. Even when financial discrepancies were discovered, no one was punished. In the case of the missing $21 billion, no one has been indicted up to date. This injustice was compounded by Congress, con congressional laws allowing the Pentagon not to, dis not to disclose the financial records while giving it leeway to plug any deficit with money from other accounts without that organization being aware money is being deducted from its accounts. I'm talking about other governmental organizations. Secondly, the military tends to be conservative. Now, conservatism meaning elevating the system above all other concerns, whereby questioning the system motive is undesirable and the questioning of said system is perceived as a, perceived as a threat. In a time of economic depression, capitalism is most precarious. Stress upon, <clears throat> stress upon people during a depression, economic depression, virtually sure people will express discontent, and particularly through the lens of economic disparities. Now, this outward display of stress may be perceived by military personnel as lawlessness. In the case of Portland, Oregon, the Department of Homeland Security personnel has been observed grabbing protesters off the street and placing them in armored car-covered car vans. This kidnapping, according to observers, is done day and night. Such brazen, uh, brazen moves suggest the rule of law does not guide decision to kidnap protesters. We could easily conclude that protesters are perceived as the enemy. If this is true, can you imagine what human rights abuses would take place once all protections are considered <coughs> all protect all excuse me all protesters are considered enemy combatants by military intelligence? To be clear, enemy combatants is a term used to designate anyone a terrorist, citizen or not. The term without legal precedent, which means that uh, it just came under, 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 it has no precedent. It didn't come from any, 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 any point of law. It's just something they arbitrarily created to justify getting around the law. Anyway, this term, this term uh, <clears throat> without legal precedent allows U.S. government to define anyone a terrorist because of what they think. 
That's important we understand that terrorism is not equated with what you do, it's what you think. And the Geneva Convention <clears throat> um, realized protects people when, in, whenever they evoke this enemy combatant status. So it seems to me, you know, that um, without, that, without that Geneva Convention protection, that we're all as the pearls of a government which sees us in, inevitably as the enemy of the state. And because we're perceived as enemy of the state simply because of what we think, then one thing we got to understand that to silence us <clears throat> means that uh, everything is on the table. There is there no there's no particular way in which you silence people, whether you liquidate people, whether you incarcerate people, uh, whatever way you do, whatever way whatever method they use to to silence people is okay, and in in given the laws of what constitute so-called enemy combatant. So clearly we got some problems in terms of this this concept of enemy combatant, what it means to the citizenry in America. And understand that, understand the situation for people, uh, specifically African people, is very, very perilous. So we have to wake up and realize that this is not a game. This is real life. This is history. And we got to understand that reality. Brother Hackey, you raised some interesting um, issues there, and we'll come back to you later. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. What's going on in your world and the community, Brother Moses? Thank you, Brother Africa. Uh, first of all, I want to say that fascism came, rose out of the need to suppress and abolish communism. The Soviet Union, the dawn of the Soviet Union led to the reactionary or backlash or whatever you want to call it, which, which produced fascism. And fascism mission from the beginning and always has been to, to eliminate communism, to squash and repress communism. It's, it's basically a chauvinist, sexist, racist movement that plays on the backward sentiments of the people. And so I just want to clear it up on fascism. Meanwhile, um, we lost uh, icon John Lewis, uh, um, a civil rights advocate, uh, a, a courageous and a leader who had a clear vision for for people here in the United States to gain their independence from uh, uh, to gain their self-determination uh, in terms of the government and, and having representative government, but voting in representative government. He was a courageous and consistent fighter for voter rights, and uh, he will be missed. He, he had the, the audacity to, um, to stand up uh, and, and walk from Selma to Montgomery, uh, um, 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 what is it, Montgomery to Selma, rather, uh, um, during that, that march, uh, Bloody Sunday. And, um, you know, it's interesting to note that uh, SNCC, who was, he was a part of SNCC at the time, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but SNCC uh, refused to uh, endorse that march, but he marched anyway. And so he was courageous. He had leadership, he had vision, and he had purpose. Meanwhile, uh, Trump is claiming that, they're more black. Um, that black lives don't matter as much because because he sees white people getting this killed, just more white people getting killed than black people in terms of police brutality, which which in terms of numer numerous and millions more of white people. So obviously the numbers are greater, but the disproportionate killings of black people is is outrageous and it's. it's we are more likely to be killed than any white person. 
And so those are the key things that are on my mind this week. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brother Moses. Now we'll go to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world in the community? Yes, yes, Brother Africa. Right now we have a case of don't believe the hype. Um, we have corporations and closing. Um, corporations are showing uh, 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 their, you know, their, uh, I guess, white supremacy um, through through the, through the aspects of clothing. Right now, uh, recently, I'm sorry, um, we had a story coming out of uh, Bonnie Lake, Washington. Um, basically, a, a, a young African man, uh, African male. Uh, Cal Sales, uh, he was wearing a T-shirt that read Black Panther Wakanda from forever. And this T-shirt, if anybody knows from last year, it was from the movie uh, uh, Black Panther. I'm sorry, the year before last, 2018, it was, it was, from, it was from the movie Black Panther, the Marvel comic movie, uh, uh, Black Panther, a uh, fictional movie. So he was working with this shirt on, and a white woman came in the store and, and, and made a complaint and said that that T-shirt is racist. Um, he needed to change that shirt. That T-shirt is, is racist. So his manager pulled him to the side and asked him to change the shirt. He changed the shirt. He changed it to a jersey, and then he went. He went home. The, 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 the same woman there, the same customer. She came up there the next day and asked the store, "What did, did he? Did that young boy uh, receive punishment? Did he get any type of punishment? What was his punishment?" And he was 19 years old. The, the young man. He was 19 years old. And uh, you know, he responded. You know, he said, "Hey, this is how this T-shirt is racist. It's from a movie." So now Lowe's had did a rebuttal, and they did a uh, they you know they issue apology from for the young man, and and they're going to they're going to do diverse training for the staff and managers so they can understand quote unquote uh, race relations and blase blase. So that's one issue or one uh, one uh, example of don't believe the hype. Another issue of don't believe the hype still dealing with corporations and corporations and uh, clothing. You have uh, a couple uh, corporations uh, or companies. You have uh, employees pushing back against um, Whole, Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and, and Twitter. Uh, I'm sorry, not Twitter, Taco Bell and Starbucks, because basically these um, businesses has 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 basically um, penalized their their employees from wearing Black Lives Matter memorabilia or Black Lives Matter masks. Um, so a lot of employees is pushing pushing back. However. Uh, let me go. Starbucks, <laughs> Starbucks had did a 52 fake out, and now they're gonna they're gonna uh sell uh t-shirts and uh you know mem- uh, memorabilia for t-shirts, keychains, and stuff like that for their employees to wear or they can purchase. They, you know, they basically it's a watered down version of the of the of the movement that's going on in the streets. Um, you know, they got little catchphrases like stand up. Time for change. Speak up. Unity. Together, we we can stuff like that for their employees to wear. But they cannot wear their own gear, uh, or quote unquote black li- Black Lives Matter girl or African, you know, African uh um uh African pro uh, pro blackness gear. They cannot wear that stuff uh in in the court in their in their at their job. McDonald's is also doing a fifty two fake out by doing the same thing. They uh also are planning to um. Do buttons, you know, with uh, that 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 show to support the social injustice. Uh, look at the word they use, social social injustice. So uh, this is this is what's going on. And McDonald's uh, quickly said that we they donate up a million dollars to the National Urban League. 
they do- they donated uh, money to the the NAACP. So you know that's their form and say, oh, I paid my dues. Um, I'm out of I'm out of the uh, I'm not like these other corporations. We don't have white supremacy. We're good to go. And uh, last but not least, uh, and I and I end off I end this I end this um, my my segment of what's going on in in our, in our world in Cuba. Cuba is manufacturing its own lung ventilators. After trying to, after attempting to purchase uh, ventilators from Swiss medical companies, um, I'm sorry, for the, from the Swiss um, companies, AMT Medical AG and uh, Acutronic, uh they was unsuccessful due to the United States of America um, acquiring these uh, companies, purchasing purchasing uh, these companies in April. So now, so basically, since that, you know, since that happened, therefore, uh, the companies that the Swiss companies um, that Cuba attempted to purchase this equipment from, they suspended trade relations uh, with the with Cuba uh, in compliance with the laws of the blockade. So Cuba said, okay, damn you. I tell you what we're going to do. We create our own uh, ventilators for the COVID-19. So that concludes um, my, my, my area of what's going on in the, on in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Maurice. What we're going to do right now... Um, we can start with Brother Anthony as he articulated some of the issues that was going on in his world and community. And Brother Mabish, he brought in Cuba. And later on, we hope to discuss a little bit more about Cuba and the concept of how it's receiving world support. And we hope to discuss that a little later on when that special guest come on. But what we're going to do right now is we're going to just reflect a little bit down memory lane and look at Cuba from the perspective of the lessons that Brother Kwame Ture left us, and we'll come back. And we'll start with some discussion with Cuba um, when we come back. So let's just look, hear this message right here, and we will continue discussion. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them, they're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture, he was crazy in the 60s, he's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane, that's clear. <laughs> they said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black, ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold, ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry, ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like, I did a little cheating on the test. (laughs) Either you believe in God or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. 
there is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active inactions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. If your people are being raped and you're looking at television enjoying a time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides herself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> so my mama. I know what I'm talking about. She belittles Cuba because Cuba's a poor country. Big bad. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> so they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. Right. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they call me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whoop them on half a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning. Look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education, not a penny. And you look at poor Cuba and see its concerns for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire them up. Shoot them all. 
to a presentation by Brother Kwame Ture. Yes, we're talking a little bit about Cuba as well as socialism. And we're going to continue the discussion right now with our political panelists, analysts, and the concept of what's going on in our world community. Brother Anthony, you said something earlier in your um, presentation that there is new laws implemented by U.S. government to further try to create wedges between Cuba and many countries where Cuba is helping them out in terms of their health care need. Can you talk maybe a little bit more about that policy and what does it really mean to African people and other oppressed people in the future? Sure. There's also a question I would like to hear opinions from the rest of the panelists. They can weigh in, too, as well. Go ahead, Brother Anthony. Okay, sure. Let me um, let me read a little bit of, of this to try to explain it. Uh, the bill introduced by Republican Senators Rick Scott, Marco Rubio of Florida, and Ted Cruz of Texas will require the Department of State to release lists of countries that contract with Cuba for their medical missions program and ensure that such contracts are considered in the annual U.S. Trafficking in Persons Report rankings. Second. In short, the bill would effectively stifle the revenue received by Cuba from its medical missions and punish recipient countries to appease President Trump's key South Florida base and the 2020 U.S. uh, presidential election as the presidential election gets closer. While the bill focuses on Cuba, its contents have extraterritorial and harmful effects on countries in the Caribbean who, without Cuba's medical support, are unlikely to have tackled the COVID-19 pandemic as swiftly as they have. The decision of CARICOM states to invite, at one point, more than 500 Cuban medical personnel into their respective countries was pragmatic. At the time, this was against the backdrop of insufficient support from richer countries such as the United States. Given the recent rhetoric of U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who earlier in the year stated that it's time for a deeper relationship between the United States and Caribbean nations, one would think the United States would have been more forthcoming in the support for the region during the pandemic. That The support never came, so the Caribbean turned to its longtime partner, Cuba, for support. And uh, and this was critical because um, uh, because uh, uh, the CARICOM countries uh, have a uh, have a dire situation because they're heavily dependent upon tourism, and uh, and uh, and that the public health systems near collapse due to the increase in COVID nineteen patients. And uh, so this has uh, this could have a if this legislation passes, it could have a, de- a devastating impact upon Caribbean countries in particular, and other countries around the world that uh, that, uh, that 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 accept uh, medical support from Cuba. 
And so even though it's directed at Cuba ostensibly, it's uh, it's extraterritorial in nature. It tries to force other countries to participate in the U.S.'s blockade of Cuba. So, panelists, what y'all make just one of the things you got to look at is understanding Cuba's historical role of assisting countries, quote-unquote, in the South, which has a large population of African people and indigenous people. This policy is not only a policy against Cuba, but also it's a policy against African and basically all other oppressed people. So if you're talking about creating a, a policy of genocide, you're talking about just outright being gangster, you can't get no more gangsters than this from the words of Tupac. Brother Hackey, what you make of this policy? <coughs> well, and I, I often think... Want, I, and one other second, I often wonder if and when they go on this policy that definitely should be pressure put on every African indigenous person that functions under the institution to fight totally against it and raise the education consciousness of the rest of the public inside the United States. So we began to put Cuba in its proper context of understanding that Cuba is not nobody's enemy. It's a friend and ally to African oppressed people. It's a friend and ally to all of humanity and all people of good conscience will should stand in support in Cuba, in support for Cuba, not in words, but also by deed. You must put an end to this blockade. Go ahead, Brother Haki. Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, you know, Cuba is a, serves as a, you know, a, a, a very clear contrast uh, to the kind of business as usual that take place, you know, in a Western context, particularly in America. One of the things, when you talk about inequality, you talk about injustice, and you talk about people needlessly suffering, America epitomizes all those ills. And here you come along a little small, poor, relatively small, poor country who does a better job at not only educating its people, but also in terms of um, providing homes for its people. It has one of the best uh, medical uh, scientific systems in the world. And the question becomes, how do you do that? And the things that you alluded to, Brother Africa, when you talk specifically, you talk about a large contingent of African people in Cuba. The question becomes, how is it that, that, you, that, that Cuba is able to do that, do all these great things? Well, so Cuba brings to light this notion that, uh, you know, that, that, um, that, that education or ability to learn is uh, defined pretty much in terms of class and or racial background. So Cuba put to, put to bed that lie, that, that disingenuous, that, um, that noble lie that's perpetrated by the West for the sole purpose of maintaining exploitation and domination of African people throughout the globe. So Cuba's a real, so as far as America concern, concerned, Cuba is a real threat. It's a real threat because the, the moment that people in America, particularly uh, people of color, begin to, and, and working, working class people as well, Normally, come to realization, you know, that there are such a system that empower people. There is such a system that's legitimately concerned about the interests of its people. Once they understand that such a system does exist and that it's not a bad thing, it's not a boogeyman. Of course, in the American context, when we talk about socialism or communism, it's like, oh, my goodness, this is a bad thing. It's horrible. But yet, when you ask most people what is socialism, what is communism, they can't even tell you what they are. But yet, they've been conditioned to believe that it's a bad thing. And so the kind of tyranny, the kind of um, injustice that inflicts people in, society, in, in American society 
is gradually coming to a head. Increasingly, more and more people begin to realize, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong. And you've got to take your hats off of Generation Z, those 20-year-olds, the 20-something-year-olds, you know, in terms of their ability to understand, you know, the, the absurdity in terms of the kind of positions that the, uh, that the, that the powerful take in regard to, you know, maintaining the status quo in this country. So the mere fact that they begin to see through the game and understand that they've been that their uh, uh, their foreparents have been manipulated, you know, by you know by you know a strong propaganda machine, their position is that we're not going to be taken by the same strong propaganda machine. We're going to educate ourselves. We're going to understand clearly what it is, and we're not only going to understand what's going on, we're going to actually fight to educate people in terms of the reality of what's going on. So America understands that it's, it's, it's time and in, in, in life is 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 uh, is, uh, is closing. And so, therefore, therefore, they find themselves, you know, in, in a real predicament. You know, earlier I mentioned, I'll conclude with this, but earlier I mentioned the fact that um, in 2017, the actual the military budget of the United States increased. Well, why did the military budget increase since 2017? Well, it's very, very clear. One of the things they had anticipated, they had anticipated they would corrupt China. They had anticipated they corrupt Russia. Uh, specifically, when you talk about Russia, they were convinced that through the fact that a lot of leadership in Russia happened to be white, they were convinced that being white was enough in itself in terms of convincing Russia, you know, to sell out the Russian people for the good of a small uh, uh, cartel that exists right there in Russia. Well, those well, it, those things didn't come to light. So this attempt in terms of manipulating the China's policy, manipulating Russia policy to the to the to the detriment, I mean not to the detriment, but to the benefit of America didn't work. And so therefore, they realized the only thing, the only recourse they have is military, the military uh, military uh, confrontation. So Cuba fits prominently in terms of that kind that kind of thinking, because one of the things is that they know they won't be able to defeat uh, Russia or China militarily, okay? But at least if the, if the position is that we can defeat small Cuba, then at least we can maintain some type of hegemony within the, in the context of the Western, you know, in the in the backyard of so-called America. And so therefore, military spending becomes extremely important to them, particularly when it comes to you know South and Russia. But here's the thing: Russia is well organized. And so even if they decide to invade Russia, I mean China, I mean Cuba militarily, Cuba is so well organized that they'll be there for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And it's the likelihood that Cuba will prevail. So clearly, you know, they got some problems, and their biggest fear is that at some point most American people begin to realize that this is all a shell game, it's all a con game, and that they're being manipulated and used while the wealth will become more and more wealth and more and more powerful, that Conversely, the, the mass of the people decided to become poor and poor, poor, more and more powerless. So clearly, uh, they're they're feeling threatened. Okay, at this point in time, we're gonna bring you one of our family members. Y'all, well, brother Obi Ibonu. He's a organizer. He's a he's a cultural artist in his own right. He's a producer of all kind of policy programs to happen to move our people forward. He's working on some special projects. And also, the next two weekends, there will be a special special concert in honor Cuba. And since we're talking about Cuba, this is very timely. And we would like to give him a few minutes to share with our listening audience the current status of the work he's doing and the significance of the upcoming concerts in support of Cuba. So, Brother Opie, do your thing. The mic is yours. Hello? Yes, brother. Can you do hear your me? thing. The mic is yours. Yes, we can. Yes, okay. we can. Um, how, 
How you doing, Brother Africa? And uh, you're glad to be on. And real quickly, as usual, um, we always love to come on uh, to talk about what history obligates us to do, to articulate, to execute what we articulate with clarity and with passion. So next week, in the spirit of all the fighters in Cuba, whether we're talking about the 300 uprisings of the captives, um, our great brother Jose Aponte, who was beheaded and his head was put in a cage, whether we're talking about General Antonio Marcel, the bronze titan, who the, whether we're talking about the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, who had 46 UNIA branches in Cuba, um, whether we're talking about the Independent Party of Color, Partido Independiente de Color in 1908, and feeding off this next week, we have taken on a serious challenge, and that is to organize a virtual, the first ever global virtual artistic tribute to Cuba. And the theme is Africa and the world thank Cuba. And the laundry list is too long, what we should thank them for, because it's the heart and core of genuine solidarity and camaraderie is gratitude. Quoting his favorite Akne Sekwichere quote was the greatest crime that one can commit is the crime of being ungrateful. So whether we thank them for fighting with us in Angola, in Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, whether we thank them for the training of 3,000 Zimbabwean teachers between 1986 and 1996, whether we thank them for keeping Asada Shakur and the late Neohanda Obiodum safe and sound, whether we thank them for Operation Project Miracle, and all the Africans in Venezuela and other parts of the Americas whose eyesight they restored, who were on the verge of going blind, whether we thank them for their current effort in 31 countries fighting against COVID-19, SARS, slash COVID-2, this genocidal pandemic, we thank them. And we're going to have artists from all over the world. Artistic representation will come from Zimbabwe. Artistic representation will come from Guinea-Bissau. Artistic representation will come from Ghana. Artistic representation will come from Nigeria. Artistic representation will come from the DRC. Artistic representation will come from the Virgin Islands, out of Canada, and out of the UK, and all through the United States. Um, the only U.S.-born African to perform with fellow Kitchen in the Africa 70, Sandra Isidore, will be performing the two-time Grammy-nominated um, artist Eric Robeson will be performing the two Cuban icons Nachito Herrera and um, Dayalyn Gonzalez will be performing um, one of the percussion ensemble of the legendary Gogo group Experience Unlimited will be performing um, an artist out of Panama named Willie Panama, who's one of the icons of the salsa movement in Panama, will be performing. Um, that's just a tidbit of artists that will be performing. We will introduce to the world um, a new genre of African music called reggae, which is a combination of reggae and go-go. So it's going to be something to look forward to. We'll let you know, Brother African, what platform it is we're going to use. With the activities start at um, 7 p.m. on Saturday, the 25th, and on Sunday, the 25th at 5 p.m. 
So we're going to have artists from all over the world. We're looking forward to this. We're humbled to be in a position to do this. And the reason is because we can talk about the political assault on Cuba, starting with the seven present first presidents of the United States wanting to annex Cuba, trying to do to Cuba what they did to Texas and California, annexing it from Mexico. We can talk about the 10-year war, the Spanish-American war, the 635 assassination attempts on Comandante Fidel Castro. We can talk about the blockade itself, but let's look at culture for a minute. In 1984, being a product of the, a generational product, not a byproduct of the crack cocaine and PCP era, Many of our generation watched and were indoctrinated and ruined their lives after watching the movie Scarface, produced by Brian De Palma, starring Al Pacino as Tony Montana, who became the main drug kingpin, cocaine kingpin in Miami, allegedly escaping persecution from the Cuban Revolution. For those who remember the movie, it begins with Comandante Fidel Castro talking about the Mario boat lift and deporting the Cubans who, as he said it, were unwilling to adapt to the spirit of the revolution. They missed the days when Maya Lansky had casinos all over Cuba and whorehouses all over Cuba. They missed the days when Lucky Luciano used to put heroin in his dolls, children's dolls, and import them from Sicily, Italy, to Havana. They missed that, and they were angry that all the whorehouses and all the drug spots were turned into schools and hospitals and homes for the people. So they were doing everything they could to destroy the country, and they were shown the door. So that movie, Scarface, which we enjoyed so much, it actually was an anti-Cuban revolutionary propaganda movie. For those of you who remember the Godfather sequel, the character Hyman Roth in Godfather II was Maya Lansky. And they show up where they were in Cuba when the revolution took place. And then, let's turn to boxing. Alexis Arguello of Nicaragua attempted to be the first four-division champion in boxing history fought Aaron Price. And Alexis Arguello was from Nicaragua. And early in his career, he was a Sandinista supporter. And the Sandinistas are the revolutionaries who overthrew the U.S.-backed dictator Somoza, whose family controlled Nicaragua for 70 years. And what ended up happening is that Arguello supported the Sandinistas early in his career, but then when he became comfortable in the U.S., he turned on the Sandinistas. And the Miami Mafia, as the Cubans call them, the Gusanos, which means salami worm in Spanish, they supported these reactionary forces in Nicaragua looking to overthrow the revolution. And it goes back to what John F. Kennedy said after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion by the CIA. What makes Cuba dangerous is not its ability to inspire its people to keep them on the track of revolution, but they will inspire others to duplicate their effort. And this is why they went to smash Allende in Chile quickly. In 73, 10 years later, they smashed Maurice Bishop in the New Jewel Movement in Grenada. And this is why they're after Maduro in Venezuela today. And this is why they deposed of our beautiful indigenous brother, Evo Morales, in Bolivia. So um, we understand the politics, but we have to pay attention to the culture. And this is why um, this is our third effort this summer. It's been a great summer for Cuba. Before this, we had the Mass Emphasis Positive Action and Creativity Youth Brigade. 
do the Get Out of Cuba Way mini documentary about Cuba's heroic efforts fighting this deadly pandemic. And we've been told that this may be submitted into the Pan-African Film Festival um, and the San Francisco Film Festival. And before that, we came on and talked to you about the appeal we did that had support from everybody from the National Council of Churches to Mumia Abu-Jamal to the first National Medical Association president, Lucy Perez, to take a delegation to Cuba nearly 20 years ago, all the way to the daughter of the Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, the Honorable Samia Nkrumah. And for your listeners who don't know, Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and the Provincial People's Party were the first government in the world to come out and recognize the triumph of the Cuban Revolution. So the ties are strong. The responsibility encourages us to continue to contribute more. We want to build off our momentum, and we're asking everyone to join us next weekend as we go through, we do this cultural and artistic tribute, and we worked in partnership with Bill Martinez and Marguerite Hoiberg and Raul Cruza, who organized the excellent activities this weekend. Last night was phenomenal, and they're doing it right now on uh, TV slash Hot House Global. Tune in to that tonight after this show is over to enjoy some Cuban entertainment with Michael McDonald and the Duke of the Doobie Brothers and Dionne Warwick. So um, we work together. Our artists are going to be more grassroots, but Africa will be represented both on the continent and the diaspora because we love Cuba. And the best way to show solidarity is to match solidarity. And we know we have to aim high when we talk about Cuban solidarity. So we thank you for this opportunity, Brother Africa. And Brother Opie, we always thank you for the work that you are doing, not only for Africa and Cuba, but for all of humanity. We thank you. But if you can give you two quick minutes, got to say something sure. about who your, who your father was, and we wish him a happy oh, yeah. birthday yeah. yesterday. You got yes, two minutes to say something. Happy birthday to the late Obi Senior, who has a very unique, not, not just in terms of what he contributed, being the co-founder of the Black Panther Party in London, um, laying the groundwork for African literature to be celebrated all over the diaspora with his 1964 book, Wind vs. Polygamy, which was transcribed into, into a play and was written submission to the first World and Arts Festival in Senegal that was organized by the great Catherine Dunham. But um, he, he was born on July 18th, the same numerical day as the Madiba Nelson Mandela, and he transitioned to the ancestors, as we say, on January 20th, 2014. On January 20th, 1973, the great Amilcar Cabral was assassinated by the Portuguese, the French, and the CIA. So um, it's an honor to have to know that he's connected in arrival and departure to Madiba Nelson Mandela and Emil Cabral, who taught us that liberation is nothing but an agriculture. So always to give um, any credit to our de- my dad that I can, and to let you all know that we reached an agreement with Black Classic Press, ran by the great Paul Coates, the father of the internationally acclaimed Arthur Tanahachi Coates, and my dad's book about black power in Britain will be re-released and published this year. It's called Destroy This Temple. And it was his account 
of black power in um, Britain. So thank you very much for giving us a chance to talk about our activity next week and to always pay homage to great fighters who are no longer with us, but obviously we're beneficiaries of what they contributed. So thank you for that. And thank you, Brother Opie. Thank you. Continue to struggle and we'll go forward. I'll be back with Brother Opie. Thank you. So yeah, and we'll be... Yes, go ahead, brother. And as the honorable Marcus Mo- and as the honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey said, next week we'll be looking for everybody in the wind as we celebrate Cuba. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Good night. Thank you. All right, you listen to Africa on the Move. What we're gonna do at this point in time, we will continue discussion on what's going on out there in the community. We're gonna take this revolutionary culture break and we'll be right back. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through. My journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich. 
more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Power. 
But the problem is that with all of this, with, with this small minority of people having all access to capital and power, it means that the number of people who don't have access to power and money exponentially grows. So you got this large number of people in which you know you got you got to do something with. And so simply the 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 the, the, um, the threat of, um, of of incarceration, of course, always exists. But more importantly, uh, what you want to do is realizing that incarcerating large number of people, even interning large number of people, uh, has only has relatively um, not the not, not the grandest kind of impact that you would like to establish. It's much better to be on a much more visual level, a uh, uh, visceral level, where you actually uh, intimidate people in terms of speech. And so what you, what happens is that if you can if you can if you can incriminate people, I mean if you can say criminalize people based upon speech. Then it has much more, a much more wholesale, a much more uh, a broader impact in terms of maintaining control. Because, so, so what I mean, when I talk about the fact that when you talk about people who are, um, you know, enemy, enemy combatants, you're not talking about people who actually get out and do anything that's quote unquote is, is considered subversive. Subversive. What you're talking about, essentially, what they're talking about is people who actually talk about the ills of the capitalist society, and talk about ways in which things that have to occur in terms of Bringing about some resolve, they're not advocating one way or the other in terms of the systematic uh, overthrow of that system. What they're simply saying is that, well, I can't find affordable housing. You know, we need a system in which we should have affordable housing. Well, to make that statement that you should have access to affordable housing means that you essentially you're putting the system, or, or you're, 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 you're essentially putting the system, uh, or, or, or <clears throat> you know, you're exposing the system essentially for what it is. And by exposing that system, uh, it creates problems for those positions of power. So imagine a situation when you've got millions and millions of people who's espousing the same thing. Well, as far as those people in positions of power, with all this, all these people speaking out in terms of the systematic ills that they are confronted with, it, it, the chances is that it poses a real fundamental problem in terms of the operation of that system. And so something fundamental has to be done with all those people who express discontent with the way things are going. And so therefore, so what you do, then you create laws to justify the criminalization of those people. And as I said before, locking people up certainly one aspect of it. Certainly, when we talk about the concentration camps, that's the other aspect of it. But before you even get to that point, if you can, if you can limit in terms of uh, um, speech the number of people who be who are prone to actually talk about it, then the system would be in much more favorable position because what you did effectively is undermine or eliminate the the, the desire of lots and lots of people, millions and millions of people, to actually speak out. In that context, you give the people in positions of power give the illusion that they are, you know, that, that everything is fine and there's there's no problem, and that's precisely what they want. So, so the implicit threat for for people in society, uh, you know, and as I alluded to, that you got to understand that people are people are people, and when you stress people enough, they're going to articulate their displeasure. That's just a given. That's just a given. And so the problem is that how do you manage all of these people who can systematically express uh, discontent with the way things go? And so this is what the point I was trying to convey. Is it Mass like you respond to that issue? And if not, I'm, Moses, yeah, go ahead, Anthony, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Now I want to add, I think what, uh, what Haki is talking about and what he's alluding to is that is that a struggle is primarily an ideological one, because uh, you know, uh, in addition to physically oppressing the people, uh, the, the 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 bourgeoisie in the, in the U.S. have relied upon for the last couple hundred years 
the on the ability to control what people think. And uh and uh, you know uh one recent example is uh is the witch hunt against socialists that took place during the McCarthy era. Uh with you know that's a recent example of that uh to try to stifle the discussion of socialism. And it was stifled uh, for several decades, and uh, but uh, but the rising uh, contradictions of capitalism have uh, have brought it to the fore again, and uh, people are starting to uh, are starting to look for alternatives to capitalism, and so I think uh, so I think uh, you know uh, political education becomes very critical here. And uh, and uh, our struggle uh, is uh, is above all an ideological one. That's what I wanted to add. No problem, brother Moses. Again, for our listening audience, if you have any views or comments if you'd like to share with our listening audience, what's going on in your community, feel free to hit one. But you need to call in at three two three six seven nine. Route. 
you know, and he and he spoke. He said himself, if you you know you, you don't expect to change anything for your people if you going to go into this bourgeois political system. So um, you know, I would speak on that. I, I honestly am not going to sit up here and put on a front like I know a lot about his uh, political background as when he was as his years throughout Congress, but. Um, that, that's 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 my contrib- contribution to to uh, to this uh, dialogue about John Lewis. Uh, and we don't want to brother, leave brother Vivian as well. Yes, go ahead, brother Hackey. Uh, this is a brother to brother Maurice. He, brother Maurice is a young brother, so he's out there struggling. You know, he's growing every day. But here's the thing that we have to keep in mind when we talk about somebody an elder like John Lewis. Keep in mind, conditioning does impact on where we feel, what we say, or how we think. And we had to keep it in mind. So clearly, you know, when you talk about conditioning, you talk about in terms of brutality being inflicted upon you on a daily basis and people free to do whatever they want to you at any time, it does weigh on you. It does, it does make you cautious in terms of your political perspective, and that's a given. And so, therefore, you know, growing up in Troy, Alabama, it's not likely, you know, uh, that, you, uh, you know, that uh, most people would, would, would dare take a stand simply because the pressure is simply too great. And we grew up, we, I mean, we, we grew up in Richmond. And we can see the impact in terms of social conditioning, in terms of the people that, that fear the, the cops. I remember on one occasion we had opportunity, uh, we had a, a, a traffic ticket, and uh, we went to court to fight it. And uh, I don't know if brother, brother Lee remembered that, but uh, we were in the court, and the judge and, and, and the cop made a little statement. And our position was that stop, you know, we we, we should stop, you know, stop lying, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we said, we know, tell the truth, you know, say we we're vociferous. And let me tell you something, the audience was like, oh, my goodness, did they just say that? I mean, the fear was palpable. I mean, they were scared. I mean, they were afraid for us because we had to dance to the standards of man like like two men, you know what I mean? And uh, they were scared. So this conditioning process is very very real. So we have to take into consideration, you know, the time and place these people come from in terms of the kind of political stance they're taking. You can't compare it to someone who grew up, say, grew up in, uh, in, in, in New York City, you know, where people generally are outspoken and people are just so angry in terms of the conditions they're confronted with. They're much more likely to be out front and much more radical in terms of their presentation in terms of how things go. But even up north, you still have that small contingency, you know, who are still afraid given the historical experiences, particularly when they move from really a small town, you know, to a big northern city. So I just ended to say that keep in mind, you know, don't don't judge him too harshly in terms of the kind of stand he took. Uh, you know, and keep in mind also that the church played a big part in terms of in terms of those in terms of those movements. And so when people are inculcated to believe, you know, that the Lord is going to solve their problems, then you gotta understand that if they internalize that belief, then they act based upon those beliefs. And so, therefore, we can't judge them too harshly. We can only say that, brother, listen, the creator gave you intellect to think. If you don't want to use that intellect to think, that's not the creator's fault. That's your fault. But 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 it's important we understand, you know, the conditioning, and, and, and the conditioning does impact on, on, our, on our elders. And, and that's, that's reality. So our struggle is to make sure that the young people behind us don't grow up with a similar mentality. And I'm confident. Yeah, that we keep doing what we're doing in terms of, you know, agitating, organizing, you know, raising the issues around what's going on. If there are young people out there actually listening who actually understand what we're saying, who will carry the torch forward, you know, when we're long gone. So I just say that to say, you know, just be cautious. And I, I understand your your uh, your concern in terms of the stance that he took. It's not what I would have done, but nonetheless, I, I think given his condition, uh, good conditioning, given where he was from, I, I certainly can understand it. Uh, uh, can, can I, I add something to that? 
can I can I can I, can I, uh, I just want to do a quick quick response to uh, Brother Haki. I want to thank you, Brother Haki, for uh, that feedback, and I just want to point out as well that um, you also had some uh, 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 freedom fighters from down south, like uh, you know Fannie Lou Hamer, Alan Baker, right here from Virginia, and also MacArthur really really uh, Ricks from Tennessee down south, and also uh, Martin Luther King himself, you know from Atlanta, being from uh, Atlanta was. You know, revolutionaries in their own right. So yeah, I, I understand that though. Thank, thank you, thank you, brother Hackey, for uh, making making that uh, point. Yeah, I'm gonna add something about uh, John Lewis, and um, you know, uh, uh, cons- to, uh, later on in his political career, and if you listen to his presentation at the March on Washington. It differs drastically from what he was saying later on in life, and I think, uh, and I think uh, 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 an important lesson is that trying to work through a bourgeois political party limits you. And I think the fact that John Lewis was a Democrat uh, put that limitation on him. He had to make certain compromises. Uh, uh, in order in order to get through certain legislation, so I think an important lesson uh you know uh recognizing his contributions during his during his life, but also uh you know the ne- the necessity of building our own independent political party, and that's why um I think. Uh, Lewis did not do more in the interest of his people because he had to, uh, uh, you know, be loyal to the party that that he was a member of, and that's the rule that governs any political party. If you're going to be a part of that party, you got to play by their rules, and I think that, and I think that's uh, that's the situation that John Lewis found himself in once he decided to go that way. So into the, in addition to the points that Haki made, I think it's important to mention that, too, that he was a member of, uh, a, a, of a party that has historically shown itself to be the enemy of African people. Yeah, you know what? Real quickly, Brother Africa, real quickly, real quickly, uh, Brother Maurice, there's a sister uh, in the city council, uh, Kim Gray. I don't know if you know her or heard about her. But the sister talked about uh, she she called the, yeah, uh, the demonstration yeah so the demonstration taking place she called them terrorists and you like, you know you like and you throw them back, you like wait a minute and, and my first inclination was wait a minute she called them terrorists I said this Kim Gray person must be she 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 must be she must be white because I can't imagine some African person calling demonstrators who's <laughs> white with justice <laughs> I can't imagine them calling them terrorists she called them terrorists <laughs> and so, and so then I talked to a sister about this, about this lady, and then it comes to find out that she, she, she's deep into the church. And so then I understand why they're terrorists. Because if, I, you're, I, indoctrinated, I, yeah, if you're indoctrinated to believe, you know, that Jesus can solve all your problems, then anybody who's quote-unquote a rabble-rouser, anybody who's there confront the system, they're doing something that's out of sync with the Creator. And so therefore, in your mind, they're terrorists. So it, 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 yeah. it boggles the mind, man. That's the only point that you're making. It boggles the mind. You know what I mean? It boggles the mind. If you, and, like, and, and you know, was, what's, that, what's that definition? If you continue the same thing over and over again and expect different results, then by definition, that's insanity. It yeah, is insanity. That, that, but nonetheless, 
it, it, but nonetheless, that's how our people operate. And keep in mind also the, the, the irony is that when we talk about in terms of you know in terms of organization, in terms of getting things done, unfortunately, you know who's the most organized sector among our people? The petty bourgeois, petty bourgeoisie. They're the most organized mm-hmm. among among that sector. They, they are. They, they they're the most organized. You mean they, they don't have any politics? They don't have a consciousness. They don't understand. But they're the most organized. So the struggle for us is if we if we could get these these people, these organizations, to become conscientious in terms of you know what they're doing. That in itself is a struggle because when you or I attempt to engage in discourse with them, they're not likely to listen to what we have to say or they simply dismiss it out of the guys that what we're saying is just somehow anti-American or somehow just plain wrong. So it is a, it is an irony, and I, I grant you that. You know, but nonetheless, understanding where these people are coming from and their, their time and space, you know, uh, uh, says a lot in terms of the kind of the kind of views that they take. And I'll struggle, brother. And trust me, I know it's difficult because sometimes I lose it. <laughs> you know, is to try to be patient when they say something that's outrageous. When they say something that's outrageous or do something that's outrageous, try not to try not to lose it over that. You know, I know it's difficult, but sometimes I lose it. Sometimes they so much, say something so outrageous. I'm like, you got to be kidding me in the 21st century. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But you got to understand, exactly. it's just the nature of the beast. That's the nature of the beast. And I close with that. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and you know, that's a great, great, great point you made because you know, John Lewis, he did make some comments in the past previously uh, that I didn't. I'm like, wow, he, you know, I, I didn't really agree with that, but I understood why he made those comments. And also with the councilwoman Kim Gray, it, I, I was caught off guard with that gesture, um, calling them, uh, you know, uh, terrorists because she voted against the, the uh, Navy Hill plan, the gentrification uh, plan. That was supposed to take place here in Richmond. So yeah, it, you know, it's very indecisive, um, very very indecisive. But I, you know, as for like CT, um, Vill, you know, um, uh, Vivian and also um, John Lewis, I, I, I go towards honestly. I, if you if you was asking me about why he walk, I, <laughs> I would speak. I would be more long winded and more uh, positive um, speaking with uh, Y.T. Walker um, right here from Virginia, from Petersburg, Virginia. He was he was a um, he was a freedom fighter in, 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 in his own right. Uh, whether if you disagree or not, uh, he 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 was. And, you know he had some attributes of it. But as for like um, like I said earlier uh, with John Lewis, I am indecisive, and I understand that, uh, now. I understand more. You know, you put it in context more about his background, uh, being in the church. But you know, I just want to be devil's advocate and say, yeah, you do have some revolutionaries who also come out of southern churches and was raised in the south so i just want to make that point as well but but thank you thank you thank you so much for your point okay panelists let's continue the discussion but before we go further we do have a caller being on the line for a while we're going to give this call a chance see if they have a comment or a question or if they want to share with us what's going on in that world we're going to give this call to his staff last four numbers uh, seven, uh, zero seven eight two, zero seven eight two. Any question or comment? Zero seven eight two. Okay, we gave him an opportunity to have any question or comment. So, if you have any question or comment, please hit one. And let's continue this discussion in terms of what's going on in your world community. Earlier, brother Anthony, you mentioned, and I w- I'd like to hear the panel position on it. On this phenomenon, I find it real interesting in terms of why we can't continue to view ourselves as a separate entity from our other brothers and sisters from around the world. For example, Brother Anthony, you mentioned earlier 
that there was an incident reported um, from Brazil how there was a sister who was assassinated by the police force there. They used a technique where they put that knee on his neck and broke her neck. Now, this story sounds very familiar. You're looking at what's going on in America, Haiti, and other places. So your response to this importance of connecting these dots to understand that we are one people, one struggle. Why was that significant, Brother Anthony, to you again, looking at this incident and sharing this with the rest of the world? Okay. Um, just that uh, the policeman put his foot on her neck. Not, uh, not not his, his foot. Yeah, he he uh, he, he he broke her, he broke her neck, and uh, and the reason is somewhat is somewhat similar to what happened in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, with George Floyd, in which uh, you know in which uh, you know police use a great tremendous amount of violence to subdue us. That they wouldn't that they wouldn't do with uh, you know uh, you know with Europeans, and it's a pervasive uh, problem that uh, I brought it up to show that it's not just happening in the U.S. And I think that's why people around the world responded uh, to what happened uh, you know to uh, uh, you know to uh, George Floyd. Because uh, it's been and, and it's been going on for for nearly 500 years, because uh, uh, the, the the root of the current po- uh, police forces and capitalist societies uh, happened to be though uh, happened to be descend from those slave captures, captures who used to capture Africans trying to escape enslavement and torture them to death. But there was no, uh, but but there but but there were there were no cameras or video uh, or, or, or anything around to capture that. So Africans, uh, you know, uh, in one part of the world, did uh, often did not know what was happening in Af- Africans in other parts of the world until the advent of technology that that uh, enables us to communicate very quickly what's going on. All around the world, even though it took place in one location, and uh, so I, I brought that uh, that dynamic up, and and it's similar to uh, uh, to the case of uh, television with the advent of television. That uh, you know the uh, the terrorism meted out by capitalism, you know, was on you know was on the small screen, and people could see that. And they could see what was happening uh, to Africans that were demonstrating for their human rights on television and being attacked by Europeans, and you know, in all in all sorts of ways. You know, else like to respond? Yeah, uh, you know the, the the abuse the abuse inflicted upon Africans in Brazil, the so-called favelas, uh, in which the the people live, the poor people live. I mean, surrenders. I mean, the treatment is very, very clear, but I'm happy that at least, you know, the Brazilian, African Brazilians are beginning to wake up and recognize their, you know, who they are in terms of identity. And that's key, because when we talk about the systematic abuse of African people throughout the world, then clearly then we understand that we're not different people. 
despite the fact, to, to the contrary, where people actually talk about the fact that we're not the same people, that we're different people. Well, the reality is the history suggests that we are the same people, and the kind of abuse that's you know, historically meted out to African people exists not just in America but throughout the diaspora. And so clearly we have a common struggle. And, uh, and again, unless the, 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 you know, we have a strong, consolidated socialist Africa, then these kind of uh, uh, abuses are not going to end. And recently, Brother Africa, I, I read a situation where um, a situation with the Aborigines in Australia in terms of the kind of abuse and the kind of land, the land grab and the great land grabbing and the stealing of land and destruction of Aborigine uh, 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 relics, those kind of things. I mean, going back 46,000 years. Those kind of things have been systematically uh, destroyed because the, 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 the relevance in terms of the, the Aborigine lives is not of any importance. And so clearly, you know, that kind of struggle in terms of, uh, you know, um, you know, People with whiter skin dominating people with darker skin. It's a was one of those kind of things that we have to we have to confront throughout the world. And so, in understanding that we're one people, you know, sort of expedite that struggle in terms of trying to bring about a just world in which we put an end to the wholesale exploitation of African people simply because of the color of our skin. And I'll close with that, brother Africa. And when I say I like to respond to that, if that, yes. Yes, I would like to make a, um, see, currently they, uh, also with this movement, with the Black Lives Matter movement, you have a Say Her Name movement, um, in connection, uh, you know, with, uh, Breonna Taylor, because they, uh, felt like, uh, or the masses felt like Breonna Taylor wasn't getting her due justice, as well as brothers like, uh, George Floyd, uh, Ahmad or Aubrey, um, and so forth and so forth, but, another, uh, sister name, we should say, African sister who, who, right in Brazil, who was murdered on March 14, 2018? Uh, Mar- Marielle Franco. You know, she was a, a councilwoman, if I'm not mistaken. She was a she was a, a you know local politician or councilwoman in Brazil, and she was assassinated, shot down uh, multiple times by uh, uh, by a, a a the same type of uh, same type of system we're dealing with here in, in, in the United States of America when we talk about the Brazilian that president uh, I, if I if I get his name wrong I don't care uh, Michelle Timur or whatever his name Tamar or what however you want to pronounce it. Uh, 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 another, uh yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um another uh Trump crony, orange man crony, if you will. Um but anyhow Franco was very outspoken against the uh, police brutality. She was very outspoken Against uh, this capitalist system we was dealing with, and and coincidentally she was gunned down and assassinated. So by them putting that foot or crushing that sister's uh, neck, uh, I'm 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 not surprised about it. Uh, this is nothing they did. This is nothing new. Um, and uh, I just want us when we say say her name, I want us to you know incorporate this sister's name as, as well, because she you know she she. Not just uh, dying, not just being uh, uh, murdered by the police, but she's really uh, fighting for for her people, our people. So, um, and I conclude with that. All right, panelists, what we're gonna do right now? Um, this is part one of a two-part series, the Killing Field. Why us? We definitely will get more into this concept of the Killing Field. Why us? We somewhat been talking about it, but. What we would like to do is that definitely one issue that I would like to raise with you, because I'd like to have your thoughts on the recent narrative of the so-called battle between Nick Cannon.
question of his statements or his behavior are anti-Semitic. I'd like for you to give some thought. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, I'd like for y'all to weigh in on where are y'all at and y'all understanding of what is this narrative is all about. So you'll listen to Africa on the Move. We'll be right back and we'd like to hear you and your perspectives on a recent phenomenon as it relates to Nick Cannon and some of the views that he articulated as it relates to the concept of being a Semitic people. We'll be right back. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Needs her, needs her freedom, Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom. Take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom, freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love. And let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our Estamos claros, te portas mal, te atribillas, te 
capilla, es que eso es obvio. O eres ángel o eres demonio, ni nino. O eres ángel o eres demonio. Quiero que toda la gente con las manos arriba. ¿Dónde están los latinos con las manos arriba? Que vive el hip hop con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? Con las manos arriba. Que viva la cultura con las manos arriba. El deporte con las manos arriba. Venezuela con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? ¿Qué? Sentimiento, sabor, rumba, corazón. La salsa retumba, retumba el tambor. No se te olvide el coro, recuerda el folclore. Te lo digo el rap, crece la tensión. Ritmo caribeño, se siente el calor. Esta es música de calle. Al que no le guste que vaya a llorar para el valle. Es música con estilo. Tú estás claro, así que solo dilo. Pa' que lo sepa. Suena tan criolla como comerse una arepa. Volar papagayo, llámalo, cometa. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. You were just listening to a hip-hop group out of Venezuela paying that tribute to Hugo Chavez. And earlier you listened to Palestine. Palestine needs our freedom. So, welcome back. Um, before our revolutionary cultural break, we want our panelists and the guests who listen to the program to weigh in on their understanding of this recent narrative of what's going on between statements that were made by Nick Cannon as relates to this whole issue of who are Semantic people and et cetera. Panelists, what are y'all weighing on how this whole um, phenomenon has been articulated, how it's been addressed? And in, in essence, what do y'all make of this narrative? Of what has occurred so far. Start off with you first, Brother Anthony. Certainly. Last last week, uh, I uh, let's see, uh, Nick uh, Nick Cannon broadcast an interview he did with Professor Griff last year. But it was broadcast uh, recently, about a week uh, week before last, and uh, and they were discussing um, uh, Judaism and the practices of people who call themselves Jews, and in the course of that, I think uh, that uh, uh, let's see uh, terms like uh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, reference to Ju- to Judaism as a race instead of being a religion, and uh, I, and uh, the the dialogue, uh, be, uh, you know, was labeled anti-Semitic by uh, by um, Zionist forces, and. Um, Nick Cannon was fired by CBS Viacom uh, for his comments, and um, uh, Ashley, uh, and you know, listening to excerpts of uh, what was being said, I think that I, I think uh, that there's a certain uh, confusion being perpetuated, per being uh, perpetuated uh, by Africans regarding uh, Judaism. Uh, you know, which is a religion and not a race, and I, I, I think I think that's something that people need need to be clear on. And also, 
that uh, that uh, Judaism is a is a religion, whereas Zionism is a political movement. Another uh, distinction that needs to be made, and that um, you know uh, Kwame Ture dev- devoted considerable amount of time trying to clarify, uh, you know, do, uh, you know, doing 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 his work. So I think I think I think the uh, you know so I think part of the problem is that uh, Judaism gets uh, you, you know the term get, uh, is not uh, the is not defined precisely enough that it's a religion not a race and that and that uh, you know and that Zionism is a political movement that has nothing to do with religion. Except for its exploitation of it, Brother Haki, how you view this phenomenon that has taken place as relates to Nick Cannon and this whole um, narrative of him being anti-Semitic? Well, you know, you know, you know, Anthony has a point. Uh, has a point. Uh, one of the things we we have to stop doing. We have to stop allowing this, this propaganda to deceive us in terms of the history, in terms of uh, in terms of Judaism, uh, particularly when it comes to you know uh, in terms of defining who a Jew is. You know, during Operation David and Operation Solomon, they took a lot of uh, the the original the original Jews, the Jews that you read about in the Bible. They took them from Ethiopia, took them to 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 Israel. And they took them so later for the purpose to teach them uh, Hebrew, the real Hebrew, the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew that existed, uh, you know, at the beginning of time. So even though these these individuals are descendants of true Judaism, um, uh, they're treated as second-class citizens simply because of the color of their skin. So this, this racism that exists among uh, so-called Jews has to be confronted. I think one of the things that has in confronting this this racism that exists among Jews, you got to understand that as Anthony said. Judaism or being Jewish is a is a is a is a culture, a way of life. It's not a person. It's not an ethnicity. And these people have actually bankrupt the religion and make it make it something that's that it's not. Uh, and also this question in terms of symmetry, we gotta understand that when we talk about a symmetry, particularly this, this is the thing that uh, that William Cass talked about in his book called Black Athena. The thing we have to understand is that when we talk about symmetry, keep in mind a lot of the people that they oppress, the Palestinians are Semitic people. African people are Semitic people. Semitic people are people of color. Semitic people are not white people. They are people of color. And so we got to be very clear in terms of when we, when we use these terms. Also, when you read like Dr. Ben Jaconin or Alvin Van Sertema, you know, even James Elliott, you know, they talk about the fact that people are being deceived in terms of this whole question around Semitism. And so we can no longer be deceived by this question in terms of what is a Jew or what constitutes anti-Semitism. So for for a Jewish person who called me an anti-Semite, I laugh. I'm more Semitic than you are. You are European, so I'm more Semitic than you are. So don't run that label. You know, don't run that label at me about you know somehow I'm anti-Semitic. I'm I am Semitic. I can't be anti-me. So I think that you know, but you know, and I do understand that uh, Nick Cannon is in a very difficult circumstance. You know, what I mean, he's in the public light, and so therefore you got to be very circumspect in terms of what you say, you don't say. I mean, because clearly designers uses the opportunity not only to bash Nick Cannon, but to, in, in essence, bash the entire African community. But that's how propaganda goes. But finally, brother, after I just said this, in terms of Jewish and, 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 and ownership of banks, now we should be afraid to say that because someone who's Jewish, you know, run major banks, uh, 
it doesn't make them per se a bad person. Now, if they're using that position of power in terms of to empower the, the Zionist regime of Israel, if they're using that to crush the Palestinians, if they're using it to, to spray racism, then question and certainly needs to be called into question. So when we talk about people like Laura Blind, um, Blindfeld, uh, um, Blankfeld, is that, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, or we talk about the Rothschilds, uh, you know, uh, or we talk about Jamin Diamond. You know, clearly, these are Jewish individuals. You know what I mean? They're very clear in terms of their Jewish identity. Uh, and they're also a Zionist. And so, therefore, because they're a Zionist, then the rally is that a lot of positions that they take are anti, are anti not only anti Palestinian, but anti African. And so, therefore, is it wrong for us to call that, 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 that um, bigotry out? Of course not. Of course not. Not at all. So I think McCann, you know, uh, you know, he, he made an apology. He had to make the apology because he had no other recourse. But what he said was not fundamentally in, 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 uh, was flawed. I mean, what he said was absolutely correct historically. So for those who do, don't know the history in terms of Judaism, by all means, check out the history of Judaism. Even Reformed Jews would tell you, you know, when you talk about in terms of the origin of of, of, of Judaism, that you're talking about African people. And they're very clear on that point, and they understand that it's not a people; that is a it's a culture, it's a way of life. It's not a people. So anyone can be Jewish if they want to be a Jewish. So this notion that only certain people out of Europe, Germany, and Poland in particular, are Jewish is, is utter nonsense. But Dick Cannon essentially was correct. In response, Moses Maurice. Yeah. Um, I think, I think um, this, this thing, as, as Anthony pointed out earlier, is an ideological struggle and Certainly, if you can squash squash the idea in its infancy, then you can prevent revolutionary ideas from taking their natural course and changing society. And so, you know, these this concept of Judaism and stuff is must have a revolutionary viewpoint, as Anthony pointed out. Um, and and you know, it is a, a cultural, religious thing, and and um, these. People who who hijacked Judaism and and created Zionism and uh, uh, are fostering this racist apartheid system. Uh, they are, are quick to call people anti-Semitic and to try to control the narrative. And um, so, any brother or sister or anybody who consciousness who speaks up and and talks about Scientifically, what's going on? They are naturally squashed. Thank you. Yes, and uh, I would add that um, I two a hundred percent times two. I two hundred percent agree with uh, Brother Haki and Brother Anthony uh, uh, um, answer uh, or response to your question because you know it's like it's like it's like uh it's like a european american saying uh by saying i'm uh if i'm i'm proud to be african i'm african he said no 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 you're not african you you you're you're a disgrace in america because you're american you're african american well he's he's uh hypocritical because he's not even american he's european he stole this land if anything he should be called your 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 american because he stole he stole this uh land uh, from native, uh, from the native, quote unquote, American. So, uh, but like, like, uh, uh brother, how he can say it no better? Um, how are you going to call me uh, anti-Semite when I am, <laughs> I am that person? You know, you know what I'm saying? So, 
they use these type of type of uh um this type of trickery, if you will, to um you know dilute what what we are saying in the in the in the direct um you know that what we are exactly what these statements are trying to say, and even with um Deshaun Deshaun Jackson, uh, Deshaun Jackson with the Philadelphia Eagles, they did the same thing with him. Um, they try to they try to uh, use that same trickery that they did with Nick Cannon and try to dilute what he was saying or take away what he was really saying. But um, you know, you have to you have to study Zionism. You have to you have to study the economic system and this political political system to get really to the nitty gritty. Uh, and I would uh, suggest, as any you know, I would suggest Nick Cannon and Deshaun Jackson to do to do that. Um, you know, do some more. Do some more studying about these uh, this economic and explosive, uh, I'm sorry, expletive. Um, sorry about that uh, system we got, exportation uh, system that we got, and you know, and Nick Cannon, he, you know, that's what you expect, what you expect, man, when you in that uh, when you in that uh, tax bracket. And I conclude. Okay, panelists, uh, we're done. This is the first part of a two-part series to kill and feel by us. We will take on next week, talk about the U.S. as a killing field, while us, this whole question of racism and reopening up the economy, along with Africans being exempt from wearing masks, and a particular death to Sister Shaw Asia, and the company of Bell was ordered to pay up. So these are going to be some of the issues we will discuss at next program, part two. Again, we'd like to remind all those who've been listening to the program, you got the chance when we tune out in the next two or three minutes, please check out the concert that is going on in honor of Cuba. One other areas where you can listen to it, I believe, is also to WPFW radio station. If you go online, they also are televising the concert. So until next week, we ask you all to continue to subscribe to Go Forward Apple. Back whenever we ask our panelists right now, one minute or less, give us your final thoughts for tonight. Side with Brother Moses. Yes, um, it's been a fine show. Um, I think we have to remember it is an ideological struggle and that without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. And so we find that uh, Pan-Africanism is, is a threat to the white power structure. Uh, they... They uh, they fear um, revolutionary and scientific um, application of, of of theory, and um, so you know we are we are in a battle, and, and we must continue that battle. Um, daily, it's a constant struggle to um, to perpetuate the ideas, revolutionary ideas, and this is our mission. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And we now will move to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, your final thoughts for tonight. As always, thank you so much for having me on this platform with with the uh, with the uh, wonderful um, uh, wonderful commentary and comments, fellow uh, panelists on the panel. I thank you so much for this show uh, every uh, every Sunday. And uh, we got to keep struggle, struggling. And as always, you have to organize and you have to do some political, revolutionary political studying. Um, I, w- I would advise our listeners to do so. If you already are, ne- uh, if you already are doing it, continue to do so. We gotta, we gotta organize more than ever. 
because um, we don't take advantage uh, right now to organize. Uh, I don't I don't know, but th- thank you. Thanks for having me here. We thank you also, Brother Maurice, for your contribution to today's program. And we'll go to Haki for his final thoughts. Brother Haki. Yeah, uh, the struggle is real. Uh, no matter how you cut it, the bottom line is that the situation in front of the African people is, 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 is very, very serious. If we don't understand the fundamental reality, if we don't understand the fundamental flow of history, then I think we're in trouble. We have to wake up and realize the reality is that well, organization, uh, our situation will become much more um, perilous. So I encourage people to build those institutions, build those organizations, because we must have it. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, because uh, it's key in terms of resolving the situation we find ourselves per- currently confronted with. And you have a good night. Yes, Brother Anthony, final thoughts. Yes, final thought. Um, we must uh, intensify our level of organization. And I think, uh, and uh, we must form independent political organizations. Uh, we cannot, uh, you know, uh, expect reform or any, or, or 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 any change in our situation as long as we depended upon the capitalist duopoly that exists in the U.S. And uh, let's see, and what, and uh, and we have to fight for Pan Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. To learn more about it, please visit. Uh, www.a-aprp-gc.org for more information. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And we thank you as well, Brother Evans, for your contribution to today's program. In closing, we just would like to remind our people, you must always remember, without information you cannot thank, and without organization you cannot thank clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people and humanity. If you don't find one that's doing that, then you have a responsibility to create one. Remember, organization is the weapon for the oppressed. So if you want to help your people, you want to help move humanity forward, get organized. Until next time, we see you next week, same time, same station, from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. And remind you, let's always continue to strive to go forward, backwards, backwards, and Pan-Africanism is the key. Was the key, it will set all African free. We'll see you next week, and we'll leave you with Mama Africa. This has been Africa on the Move, hosted by Brother Africa.
Just can't stand much more 
the forest Buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter In America, yes, and all of the hills have been killed, sent away. Yeah, but the people know, the people know it's winter. Winter in America. Constitution, a noble piece of paper, with free society, a struggle but they died in vain, and now democracy is a ragtime on the corner, a hope and for some rain, it's looking like he's a hope and hope and for some rain. And I see the robbers first in barren treetops They're watching last is races Marching across the floor But just like the peace behind That vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow It's winter, winter in America, and all of the hills have been killed, or
Oh, 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 
Let's go. 